Hey, thanks for tuning in. You know, you're in for a real treat today. It's the start of our new limited series that we're calling Learn with Shopify. In these special episodes, we sit down in person with Shopify merchants as they share their secrets to success and how you can do the same. But don't just take my word for it. Stick around and find out for yourself. Your biggest levers you can pull in terms of retention are things like product quality, customer experience, and packaging. You know, it's like the real nuts and bolts of a business. Welcome to Learn with Shopify. I'm Adam Levinter. Established in 2011 and based in Toronto, Vitaly produces future-focused designs using stainless steel, the most recycled material on the planet. Each Vitaly piece contains remnants of machines, skyscrapers, or car parts, a cycle that continually influences their design practice, which is truly unique. They've built a community of north of a million followers, driving over eight figures of revenue, and today we're chatting with Joe Kornfield, President and CMO of Vitaly, diving deep into performance marketing, customer acquisition, brand building, and more. Joe, welcome to Learn with Shopify. Thank you for having me. Um, let's dive into the early days of building a brand not only with Vitaly, but some of the other brands that you're now overseeing. So driving traffic to these brands, I'm assuming is super critical, right? So what are the strategies and tactics that you swear by that you practice in terms of driving traffic in the early days? I think it's changed over the years. I think there's been probably three main eras of our kind of growth strategy. Um, in the early days, we were building... A disruptive social media brand, and that was possible in 2014, 2015, you know. Um, being a brand on Instagram and growing on Instagram was new, and, you know, partnerships with influencer, influencers and bloggers were super, super effective. The twilight of that era was probably 2016 when we saw some, you know, big money and, you know, larger brands get into the social media space, specifically on Instagram, and, and we saw kind of ROI with that traditional influencer marketing and kind of blogger marketing really sink. So after that was kind of the paid media era. So really um, from 2016 until maybe exactly April 2021 uh, was, you know, the heyday of paid media, specifically paid social. And that's that was certainly our bread and butter for all all of our brands growth strategy at that point. And now we're kind of entering a third era. Is it the reckoning of Digital marketing uh, as a whole, potentially, I think if you talk to some brand operators and some marketers, they might tell you that. I think that we're definitely in a transformational time right now where algorithmic marketing uh, and a plethora of data signals about, about your customer is coming to an end. And we're, full disclosure, still figuring that out internally. I think uh, we're entering the era of really focusing on brand, really going back to kind of a traditional approach to marketing where you get to know your customer and have, you know, take the strategic reins back from the black box of Facebook or the black box of, uh, you know, Google um, and really hit the bricks. What happens post-2016? You talked about this shift that happens in early 2017. In, you know, 2015, 2014, the peak of Instagram for, uh, you know, the beginning days of building a brand on the platform, we were doing partnerships with influencers and blogs that would garner us, you know, 10,000 followers and tens of thousands of dollars of sales in one shot. 
And in 2016, what we saw was just, you know, an influx of dollars and an influx of brands to the platform. Um, and, you know, the ROI wasn't there on those paid campaigns anymore. So we actually made the decision in 2016 to stop influencer marketing altogether. Hmm. And that that was around a six month period. Um, and then we decided to kind of take another look at influencer marketing and approach it from a hundred percent organic perspective. So we were very much in the early days, you know, writing contracts and with specific deliverables for every single influencer we worked with. There was a ton of administrative workload um, and a ton of oversight that went into that. And we decided to to start gifting our product to influencers, uh, no questions asked, completely kind of organically and just seeing what would happen. And so I, I guess we would call that our mass uh, influencer marketing strategy that we that is still kind of our bread and butter today. But basically, we're just relying on the strength of our product. We're relying on, you know, super organic relationships between influencers and our brands who have a strong affinity with us and actually want to wear the product out and evangelize for it. Um, and we're able to do it at scale without any of the, you know, kind of contracts or hassle involved with paid campaigns. So basically, our product is our budget. We find influencers who, you know, really mess with it and we give them. And that's kind of the transition that we made in 2016. Who are some of the most important influencer relationships that you've carved out over the years? There's certainly been collaborators who have kind of transcended the level of influencer and have actually made product and content collaborations with us um, over a long-term period. The first one that comes to mind is, is Peter McKinnon, who um, a lot of you out there have probably heard of him, but he's a big uh, content creator on YouTube who kind of focuses on his, uh, I guess, creative journey as a photographer and videographer. And uh, our founder, Shane, reached out to him, I think, in 2019 to do a product collaboration for one of our brand's Clocks and Colors. And it really, again, exploded and, and transcended the realm of what influencer marketing you know, really is. He, he really created an entire brand uh, onto himself and we kind of have released a number of capsule collections with him. So yeah, there's been large scale collaborators that have really moved the needle. And I think that's something that becomes a lot more interesting when you're not necessarily able to target a particular niche with Instagram ads anymore. Okay, well, maybe we can, you know, really go after a niche by finding the influencer or content creator who's has a strong affinity in that world and collaborate with them directly. Um, so it's definitely a conversation that continues to happen, especially post post iOS apocalypse. So the post iOS apocalypse, uh, let's talk about that for a moment. Does that happen in April of 21? I mean, officially, I forget what the official date was, but I think it was April or March. I think it was actually April 26, 2021, where iOS 14.1 or whatever went live. But we didn't see, you know, the sky didn't fall overnight. Um, we kind of expected things to get shaken up immediately. But instead, what we saw was kind of just a gradual decline in, in our, our paid performance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of that was, was masked by this massive COVID boom that happened in 2020 and the beginning of 2021, which certainly like padded those numbers a little bit. But now we're kind of in the, the hangover period of that massive COVID, you know, e-commerce growth phase. And we're really starting to feel the effects of paid media not being at what it used to be. And I think that we're in a really challenging transition period where it's kind of like a growing up phase where we're not, 
you know, we're not D2C anymore. We're not, you know, a company that's going to take millions in VC money and spend it on meta ads to grow. To grow. Um, this is a future of, you know, what can we do in terms of old school brand building, old school marketing, um, and become kind of like weird as it is to say, like a traditional house of brands. What does old school marketing and old school brand building look like? To borrow a word from Shane's kind of vocab scrappiness. It's definitely one of the kind of old school qualities, I guess you could say. I think how we're executing on, on scrappiness is we're really getting creative in terms of how we're opting in customers to our email and SMS lists, especially, you know, in this world where we can't necessarily reach them via paid anymore. We definitely, you know, are prioritizing getting them onto our own lists. So, you know, we've done things like giving away a custom Harley, um, which we were able to drive, I think, 55,000 email signups and 35,000 SMS signups. And six months later, have all those net new kind of uh, CRM acquisitions come back and spend over half a million dollars in the business, um, which was like a, you know, a 10x ROI for that particular campaign. So getting old school, getting scrappy, getting creative, maybe gorilla is another word we could use and kind of growth hack our way out of performance woes. For those that are watching or listening, they may not have the budget to give away a Harley to all of a sudden capture 55 plus thousand emails. What do you suggest startups or early stage DTC companies do to start to build that direct relationship with that customer? Yeah, I think a lot of people would probably say this, but we're, we're just entering the era of TikTok. And I think that, you know, we talked about Instagram in 2015 as being in its heyday and being an absolute, you know, the wild west of brand building with so much opportunity. I think TikTok is absolutely that today. I think if I was, you know, building a brand, I would focus on finding an organic TikTok strategy that really worked and finding content that resonated and was getting a lot of reach on that platform. And then I'd funnel it straight into, you know, TikTok paid and start start experimenting there where currently, you know, traffic's very cheap and a lot, a lot is possible. We ran a campaign with Vitaly recently where uh, we just rebranded and launched this new logo that we call the Glyph. And we created these eight pieces of found footage style uh, video content um, that kind of featured the glyph appearing in strange places around the world, you know, like appearing in a storm cloud or, you know, being rendered by a flock of birds. And we posted these all on TikTok and Reels and a couple of them went super viral. We drove over 11 million views across both platforms on these found footage um, TikToks and Reels. And then we just, you know, plugged those clips that went viral straight into paid and uh, found that um, the stuff that did well organically on TikTok was doing super well uh, in paid and was driving like 50% lower CPCs than our business as usual content. Not to say TikTok is the only strategy that works these days, but I'd certainly experiment there and I get really, really focused on SMS as well. We started our journey, I guess, on SMS in late 2020. And I think within six or eight months, we were doing 80% of what email was doing in terms of revenue with a list a quarter the size. So SMS is king, at least for now. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with the next set of privacy regulations around, uh, I know email is next up for, for Apple already, uh, and who knows what's going to happen with SMS, but certainly SMS is a big opportunity right now. What do you think it is about SMS that's so successful? Do you think it's that intimacy that comes with getting a text message on your phone versus getting an email that presumably goes to spam? I think it's the open rate. 
you know, I think like no one, very few people uh, receive an SMS and never open it. I think customers will start getting wise. And I think also tech companies like, you know, Google and Apple will start getting wise to maybe protecting the the SMS inbox of their customers. But for now, I think that yeah, if you can get someone to opt into SMS, that relationship is worth its weight in gold because you can reach out to them like they're a friend. So doing um, conversational things, you know, uh, mixing up your messaging and using uh, MMS and SMS as well as kind of maybe more conversational tactics to drive conversions is like, right now it's really working well. Do you think about that um, as a marketer? Do you think about the tactics of acquisition versus retention very differently like there's a sort of very different from a practical standpoint sort of very different behavior marketing practices to go out there and start to acquire customers nurture them down the funnel versus nurture them post transaction so how do you think about that i think there's a sense that retention has some like trickery to it it's like what automated flows or what automated gift cards can we send to our customers and after 60 days to get them to return to make a second purchase? Or what can we do to prevent a customer from sunsetting after six or 12 months? We did some research recently into our um, kind of, I guess, customer retention time windows. And we found that the vast majority of second time purchasers were returning in the first 30 days. Mm -hmm. And what that told us was that your biggest levers you can pull in terms of retention are things like product quality, customer experience, and packaging. You know, it's like the real nuts and bolts of a business. You're not going to trick anyone to being a loyal customer by sending them an email. You're going to win them over in that first experience um, if you're shopping online when they receive the package, open it up, and, you know, really test out the look and feel. So that's where I would invest in terms of retention. Acquisition is a completely different beast, obviously, but... Um, that's kind of how we're thinking about it. What about the components of brand building versus customer acquisition? What are the differences? Um, and what do, do you look at those components as very different from one another? Yeah, I think the goalposts are different. And, uh, you know, as a bootstrap business, we don't always have the luxury of being super forward looking. I think that right now, with the digital marketing landscape being uh, what it is, we've kind of struck a fine balance between performance marketing in the short term and brand building in the long term. Um, a prime example being, you know, rebranding Vitaly and releasing this entire, you know, creative campaign, new new product line, new website, um, and obviously new logo. That's a that's a long term play. You know, we're not expecting sales to spike overnight. But the goalposts have moved back a bit for those brand campaigns, and we're looking at things like: Are people buying product with the new logo on it? Are they out there tagging us on social media? You know, with the logo clasp facing forward and really repping the brand. And I think those kind of qualitative KPIs are what you have to look for when you're kind of planning for the long term, and certainly. We've seen some success there with the new Vitaly brand when it comes to things like feedback from our customers, feedback from our super engaged community on social media. It's not a KPI in the same sense that you'd see in, you know, Facebook Business Manager, but we balance that now with the long-term thinking. How do we build like a really robust brand for growth five years down the line kind of thing? What are the pieces of customer feedback that have helped to shape your marketing strategies? We're doing a big round of customer research right now, both 
in a quantitative sense with kind of, you know, a big round of digital surveys just to reacquaint ourselves with the core demographic data of who our customers are, but also getting that kind of human data. So we're actually sitting down with our customers and having, you know, one-on-one conversations with them. In terms of how we action on that, tidbits like, you know, what kind of artists are you listening to these days really inform who we're seeding as part of our gifting program and who we're targeting as part of our collaboration program. You know, if we find that our market is shifting more into a rock and roll world or a pop punk world, then that's certainly something we'd investigate in terms of uh, potential collaborators, um, stuff like that, just knowing the customer really well. Interesting. Um, Let's come back to KPIs for a moment. I just wanted to ask you about CPCs because you brought it up in relation to TikTok. (laughs) So return on ad spend is one metric that people track, uh, CPA. You noticed that I mentioned CPC in relation to TikTok and not CPA. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just want to ask you um, about those metrics and, and which ones are most important and and should you pay attention to the same sorts of metrics on TikTok as you start to navigate that paid ad arm of, of that channel versus what you were previously experimenting with on, on Facebook, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, the benchmarks are certainly different. I did mention CPC as a benchmark for TikTok campaigns, which is not something we really measure against mm-hmm. in our other performance channels, um, kind of an outdated metric. But I think the reason being that measurement tech just isn't there for TikTok yet. And I think that, you know, we haven't done a deep kind of study on this internally, but other advertisers are talking about, you know, a 30 or 40 percent underreporting in terms of actual ROAS and conversion value through like TikTok's own uh, self-serve platform. So yeah, the reason why I mentioned CPC is because we drive upper funnel metrics on TikTok. We find that that's where we're winning right now. Bringing people on site for the first time, having them consider the brand for the first time, and then having the opportunity to re-engage with them after they've signed up for our email or SMS list or remarketing them down funnel and our other channels. That's the strength of TikTok for us right now. I think that other brands have certainly cracked the performance code in terms of you know true performance marketing on, t- on TikTok. To be you know completely honest, that's not how we're using it right now. We're using it very much as a kind of like very very upper funnel brand awareness tool. What do you think the secret is to cracking that performance marketing code on TikTok? Is from what I'm seeing, you know, in our ad accounts on a day to day basis, creative has the most profound effect on on everything downstream. So, you know, uh, you can optimize campaigns with different targeting, you know, layering interest targeting or lookalike targeting or whatever, or getting deep on demographics, but you're not really going to move the needle that way. What we've seen is that strong creative performs really well and creative that doesn't engage uh, performs terribly. So I think that's where, you know, going back to the idea of finding your organic TikTok strategy and then simply bringing that strategy onto TikTok, I think is a great, um, great way to approach the platform. Um, But certainly creative is king, as cliche as that is. (laughs) So we're seeing the sun setting, obviously, on Instagram, perhaps sun rising on TikTok. Are there other marketing channels that you think are going to be important to brand building over the next two, three years? When it comes to brand building, retail is serving a lot of different purposes. Uh, We're not taking an approach to omni-channel that's like, you know, let's set up this billboard showroom where people can come experience the brand and not, you know, create an actual self-sufficient sales channel. That's not how we're approaching it. Um, We've already proven the retail model in Toronto and a bunch of other cities in Canada. And now we're looking at kind of bricks and mortar internationally, especially in the States, as a way to build brand, but also build 
you know, robust sales channels that are kind of impervious to the vicissitudes of the digital marketing landscape on a day to day basis. Right. So scaling a lot slower, obviously a lot more capex upfront, um, but certainly retail is a channel where we're not only marketing, um, but selling in future. So, you know, if you have a, a marketing budget to deploy in any given month and you're looking at paid ads, which is very sort of short-term ROI driven versus moving those dollars to say more brand building, longer term stuff. How do you think about that over time? I guess the traditional way to think about it, uh, balancing performance versus brand in terms of paid media would be like, okay, let's take 20% of budget or 10% of budget and invest it in an awareness campaign or a video views campaign or something. That's not really how we're looking at it. I think we're looking at more, again, qualitative metrics like, um, Let's take a section of our budget, let's invest in brand, and let's see how people are responding in terms of you know, social media comments, feedback from our VIP customers. I think where we've also seen you know, a measurable boost from our brand efforts is in our kind of mid-funnel. I think that as performance advertisers for all three of our brands, uh, we always kind of struggled in the mid-funnel. And I think that as we continue to invest more in those upper funnel kind of awareness campaigns, we really started to see those mid funnel audiences swell and become almost like a prospecting campaign unto themselves. You know, these are like light touch engagers on social media, maybe people who visited our website but have never converted. And we're really seeing like, you know, strong performance growth and actual scale coming out of our mid funnel campaigns, which is. Um, it's kind of the first time it's ever happened for us. And I think it's really closely related to how much we're investing in brand right now, because, you know, that's what's filling that, you know, mid funnel audience. I don't know if you guys as performance marketers think about channel diversification in this way. But again, if we're talking about deploying a marketing budget and experimenting with various customer acquisition channels on the paid side, seeing that we've historically come out of this era of being way too over-indexed on Facebook, and now we've see, we're seeing this reset. How should a performance marketer be thinking about diversification of channels and deploying those dollars more effectively? I think if I were to, to design, you know, a pie chart of what is the perfect, you know, spend breakdown by channel in terms of paid media for, you know, a D2C company today, um, I try to be indexing less and less, as you pointed out, on meta properties, and I try to be experimenting more and more, depending on where my customer is, on TikTok, on Snap. Where we're seeing a lot of performance recently is on Google, and it's not like a, you know, it's not a sexy new platform, but they have a new product that we are in love with called Performance Max, which basically takes all of the best elements of, uh, of Google, whether it's, you know, video on YouTube or shopping or search or display, uh, and it's taking all of those together and running it in a single smart campaign that's kind of a mixture of upper and lower funnel. And we found that it's really kind of like cracked open our ability to scale on Google because it's so much better than we ever were at optimizing that crazy mix of, you know, YouTube for action and search. And are we feeding search with display? What we're seeing is Performance Max really do it all for us. We kind of plug in our best assets and plug in our best copy and let it do the work. Um, so strangely enough, uh, Google, I would definitely assign a, a little bit of a slice of that pie to. But certainly when it comes to replacing that tried and true bread and butter, spend $1 on Facebook, get two, I think 
where the best opportunity right now is TikTok if you can crack the code. But I think we're all in a position, I think all marketers right now would be lying if they say they have a tried and true system at this point. I think now is the time to test, test, test and find, uh, you know, find a new winning scalable strategy. So Google becomes part of your traditional approach to marketing. TikTok becomes part of your progressive approach to marketing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So how are, how are you guys thinking about content creation across these different brands? And how do you deploy that at scale? Um, I think my answer will be true for a lot of uh, brands these days, but uh, UGC or what we call internally, what we call it internally is community generated content as opposed to user generated content is definitely our bread and butter for our, um, for our social channels. Um, so we are able to tap into that, you know, gigantic roster of influencers and content creators who we reach out to through our gifting program. Uh, and kind of pluck our favorite content um, from that pool, as well as build relationships based on content generation with uh, the creators who we, uh, you know, find the most success with their content kind of thing. So there's a lot of uh, what we call community generated content. And then we balance that with our own kind of in-house editorial stream and in-house native social stream. And we just try to find a find a mix that works. But I think that, again, if I were a brand starting out or if I was a brand struggling to reach creative scale, I would definitely tap content creators, tap influencers as a way to, you know, kind of quickly reach scale and test uh, tests on a high volume basis. Joe, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me.